0: Well, in Lord of the Rings, the kingdom of Gondor is without a king. Uh, long ago the king's son rode out into battle, and he never returned. And so his fate being unknown, there was no heir to the throne. So the stewards of Gondor were put into place to rule on behalf of the king. You know, rather than sitting on the throne, the stewards sat on a simple black chair at the foot of the throne. Uh, They didn't wear a crown, they held no scepter, they watched over the throne until it could be reclaimed by a true king of Gondor, an heir of the ruling line. Well, almost a thousand years have passed, and we come to the events of of the novel, of the story. And at one point, the steward, Denethor, is asked, asked by his son, how much time must pass before a steward can assume the throne, if the king never returns. And so the steward replies, a few years, maybe, in other places of less royalty. But in Gondor, 10,000 years would not suffice. And so the greater the king, the longer his servants gladly wait for his return. You know, I think Tolkien there was onto something. Because here we are in the year 2022. Almost 2,000 years ago, the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, along with 500 other eyewitnesses, claimed that their master was raised from the dead. After being crucified by the rulers and the powers of the day, and after 40 days with them, Jesus was taken up into heaven before their very eyes. Until a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they kept on looking, two angels appeared and said to them, Why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And so those disciples went on to spread this message about the Messiah who gave his life for sinners and who is one day returning to reign. And now here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, Christians all around the world are still waiting for the return of the king. You know, if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetimes, do you think Christians will still be found waiting for him in the year 3,000? In the year 5,000? You know, for a lesser king... Maybe his disciples would have given up after just a few years. But for Jesus, 10,000 years would not be too long to wait for his return. And so here in the year 2022, we await his return. Yes, 2,000 years have passed, but don't let that fool you. Our waiting doesn't speak to the slowness or the weakness of our King, no, it speaks to his majesty. His authority, his goodness, far beyond what we can comprehend. And that great king, as he promised, he is coming. And yet, when he arrives, what will he find? More importantly, will we be ready for him? And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Uh, We've been working through the parables. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 35, the parable of the servants. You know, Luke 12 fits in the narrative of Luke's gospel as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples that he is going to be rejected, that he's going to be killed, buried, raised on the third day. And now on his way to to Jerusalem, he is teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him, what discipleship looks like. And here in chapter 12, these parables tell about the return of the Son of Man. Part of our discipleship to Jesus is being ready for his coming and being faithful with all that he has entrusted to us. And so here's the main question that we're confronted with. Will you be ready for the return of Christ? How will Christ find you when he returns? And we see here in this parable, he gives us two different stories. Uh, he, He gives us contrasting options for how Christ will find us when he returns. And the first contrast is this. Will Christ find us alert or will he find us asleep? All right, so look at Luke 12, starting in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the household had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the scenario here is pretty clear. Uh, The master is away at a wedding feast. Uh, He's going to be coming home very late. And nobody really knows when. Uh, and so the main point of this parable is that the servants must be ready to welcome him home when he arrives. Even while he's not there, they're to be waiting, they're to be ready, expecting him to return at any point. Jesus here says that they're to be, they're, they are to stay dressed for action. Literally, they are to gird up their loins. You know, in, in these old days when you had to wear robes, uh, it's hard to run in your robes. So what people would do if they needed to move quickly, they would gather up their robes, they would wrap them around their waist, that way their legs were free to run. Um, these servants were to be ready to spring to action you know, as soon as the master arrived, even while they were waiting. And they were to keep the lamps burning. You know, As the night wore on, they had to make sure that the house was lit, uh, keep the logs going in the fireplace, right? keep the oil uh, going in the lamps, make sure that everything was ready so that as soon as the master returned, even late into the night, uh, they would be ready to welcome him there. You know, the opposite of all this is uh, to be unprepared, even asleep. Jesus illustrates this with a different image there in verse 39. Uh, the unprepared are like this owner of a house that, have, that has no idea that a thief is coming. You know, they leave the house unguarded, they forget to set the alarm, the lights are out, the homeowner is away or he's asleep, and so the thief comes, unexpectedly, and he makes off with all of his treasures. Had he known, of course, the master would have gotten ready, but as it is, he is totally unprepared. You know, these, uh, these parables describe what the servants are up to while the master is gone. And and, and this parable in particular is teaching us that the disciples of Jesus are to be ready, to be alert, expecting the master to come back. Like I said earlier, we live in this unique period in redemptive history where, where Jesus the Messiah has come. He has conquered sin and death by his life, death, and resurrection. He has been crowned the king of the universe. And yet though his kingdom has been inaugurated, yet strangely, it has not yet been consummated. And so we live in this age, this, this strange in-between time, where yes, Christ is pouring out his spirit, yes, through the preaching of gospel, he's, he's gathering people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And yet though we have known Christ's saving reign, we are still those servants waiting for his return, longing for his kingdom longing for the day when we will feast in the house of Zion. And, and this has been the case for 2,000 years. Uh, the book of Revelation ends with that prayer, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Right? The, the earliest Christians in the Apostles' Creed confessed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And, and even here in 2022, as Baptists, In the Baptist faith and message, we confess the very same hope. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. Friends, this is the historic Christian hope. We don't just believe that the spirit of Jesus lives on, that his teaching is embodied in his people. No, we believe that Jesus is actually coming back in the flesh, personally, visibly, in glory, to this earth to judge and to reign. And while the master is gone, one of the marks of his true subjects are those who believe that that this master is coming back. Even though the hour drags on late into the night, even as we look forward to his return, Jesus makes it clear. We don't know when he's coming, right? The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, he says. Back in the 1840s, William Miller predicted that according to his calculations, his reading of, of Daniel that Jesus would come back on March 21st, 1844. I guess just, you know, the anniversary just passed. Uh, he, he drew a huge following known, known as the Millerites. Well, that date passed. Uh, Miller decided, oh, I miscalculated. I used the wrong calendar. Okay, so, so he reset the date. April 18th, 1844. Well, 18th, 18th came and went. So so Miller goes back, looks at his figures, decides, okay, I I made another miscalculation. Okay, now I know the date is going to be October 22nd, 1844. And now people were like, okay, this is it. Third time's a charm. But then the day came and went. One Millerite recorded, I waited all Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, and I was feeling well. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, but sick with disappointment. Friends, being ready for Jesus' return does not mean trying to predict when he will return because that's impossible. Jesus teaches us that the master will come at a time when we do not expect. And, and maybe your eschatology doesn't try to nail down a date like William Miller, and that's a good thing. But I think sometimes we do try to overpredict when Jesus will return. If your eschatology allows you to say something like, you know, before Christ returns, this political event must happen. Or, or, or this, um, this thing must take place. You know, for folks who are passionate about missions, they think before Christ returns, these 7,000 7, unreached people groups must hear the gospel, right? And, and because if, if, if your eschatology says that, and because that hasn't happened yet, then you can think, I know Christ is not returning today. Then that's not Right? Right? Uh, because Christians have always believed not only in the physical return of Christ, but in the imminent return of Christ. He can come back at any point. Uh, and what that means is that we have to live as if He might return, maybe even today. So, what does it mean then to be ready? What does it mean to be alert? What does it look like to live in the belief that Jesus is coming back? Does it mean we live, you know, we, 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 we are there staring up in the sky? We join some monastery? No, no. According to the New Testament, it means two basic things. It means holding fast to the gospel, and it means living in repentance and faith, right? Living in holiness and obedience to Christ, Jesus warns us that in the last days, there are going to be all kinds of wolves, all kinds of false teachers who are going to lead many people astray from the gospel. But the way we persevere is by holding fast to the message of Christ as preached by the apostles, this message of salvation by faith in Christ alone, trusting in his death for us on the cross, his resurrection and complete victory over sin and death. To be ready for Christ's return means that we do not stray from this hope, but we build our lives on it. Having grown up in the church, how many friends and loved ones have I seen, have you seen, who once professed faith in Christ, but today no longer have moved on to other hopes? In a day when prominent ex-evangelicals are deconstructing their faith, offering classes to help others do the same, in order to fit with the times. Um, We live in a day where we are being tempted by this. Will those who have deconstructed their faith be ready to face the master when he comes? Will they even recognize him? And it's not only about holding fast to the faith, but it's about living a life of obedience to Christ. Every time we refuse to give way to sin and temptation, we live as if Jesus is coming back. Every time we give in, to sin and temptation. We are basically living as if Jesus is not coming back. In the second letter, in the second letter Peter responds to the scoffers who are asking, where's the promise of his coming? And he reminds them that God is being patient with sinners. And then he concludes with an exhortation for Christians. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness And Godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's how you live in readiness for Christ's return, living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Are you living, brothers and sisters, in such a way so that if Christ were to return today, you would rejoice? You would not be ashamed? You know, this is going to take perseverance. The master could come very late, even into the second or third watch, midnight or even three in the morning. You are going to be tempted as you go through the Christian life to think, oh, is he even coming back? I'm so tired. It's not worth staying up so late. You know, but you'd be wrong. You know, this is why we need churches, right? Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, let us not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, that final day. With each passing day, we know that the day is drawing near. There's a growing sense of urgency. And we gather week after week, we, we gather with Christians who are involved in our lives who can help us to stay awake, help us to stay alert. It's so easy to fall asleep when you're all by yourself. When you're, when you're on that long overnight drive by yourself. But if you've got somebody riding with you, you guys can help each other stay awake, right? And we need that in our lives as Christians. We need people to say to us, hey, wake up. Keep hoping in the gospel. Don't give in to sin. Christ is coming. Don't give up. Will Christ find you alert, or will he find you asleep? Second, will Christ find you faithful, or will he find you Foolish. That's what we see here, starting in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of whom, of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You know, this second parable begins with Jesus asking, Hey, Jesus, was this parable just for us disciples? Or, or did you mean this for for all these other people also to hear? You know, it's as if Peter is concerned that, you know that these people make sure that they're paying attention, right? Um, Hey, Jesus, I appreciate what you're saying. Make sure these people really need to hear this. Make sure that they're listening. And as we would expect, Jesus kind of turns the tables on Peter and gives another parable that highlights particularly the accountability of those who have been entrusted with authority. Um, Once again, the master is absent, but he has put a servant in charge of the other servants. Uh, to manage their food while while the master is gone. And so this servant is a, a steward. He's an administrator. He's not free to do whatever he wants. No, he's been given instructions from the master. And his job is to carry out those instructions. Because, you know, the master here clearly cares for all of his servants. He wants them to be taken care of while he's gone. And insofar as this servant, this manager, this steward is faithful then the master's household will be blessed. But in verse 45, this servant turns out to be unfaithful. Right? Notice it all begins with a lie that he believes. My master is delayed in coming. Uh, he's telling himself, it's been a while. Is the master even coming back? He, he's not coming back anytime soon. How do I even know he's coming back at all? Ah, I'm in charge now, friends. I, I tell you, um, behind all of our unfaithful acts are different lies that we're believing. So now, freed from the truth, this servant begins to live out that lie. And what a wicked servant this is! Rather than caring for the other servants, he begins to beat them, abuse them. Rather than distributing the food, he begins to hoard it for himself, and he gets drunk. Rather than carrying out his master's will, he thinks that he now is the master. Friends, we live in a fallen world where servants like this are all too common. I mean, Jesus is describing our world, isn't he? Most tragically, we have seen these kinds of servants even in the church. Pastors, church leaders, who are supposed to love and feed God's sheep, Instead, they fleece the sheep and enrich themselves. (laughs) And sadly, in this world, when all is exposed too often, these leaders have gotten away without much consequence, leaving the sheep battered and wounded. Well, no matter how much this foolish servant believes this lie, he is wrong because the master will return. And when he returns all the other servants will rejoice. And these foolish servants will be caught unaware and exposed for the wicked servants that they are. You know, friends, we live in a culture that is growing increasingly suspicious of authority. And as stories continue to come out of the abuse of authority, even in the church, you know, some Christians are beginning to wonder, should we even have pastors and elders anymore in the church? Well, wouldn't it be better for us just to be sort of like a democratic sort of congregation? If we have elders and pastors and authority in the church, doesn't that just result in more spiritual abuse? What this parable is teaching us is that the abuse of authority is a wicked thing, and God takes it with deadly seriousness. Christians, of all people, are those who understand how wicked This kind of abuse is because it it utterly misrepresents what God is like, what the master is like. God established authority to be a representation of his authority. And foolish servants blaspheme God when they abuse their authority. And so, insofar as abuse is being rightly exposed in our day, I praise God for that. At the same time, We have to realize that the solution to evil authority is not the abolishment of authority, but rather replacing it with good, God fearing authority. I mean, that's why this parable is being told. Peter, who would one day be a leader in the church, he needed to hear this. Uh, Many years later, Peter would write to his fellow elders Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, I wonder if Peter had this parable in mind when he wrote that. Some of Jesus' last commands to Peter was exactly this. Feed my sheep, right? Be that kind of servant who distributes the food of God's word faithfully to Christ's people. Authority in the world and even more in the church has been established by God to be a blessing for the flourishing and for the protection and for the unity of God's people. Righteous, God fearing authority is a gift from God. And we should pray for that. So, here there's a special word then for all of those of us who are called to exercise authority in the church and in the world, pastors, elders deacons, youth group leaders, Sunday school teachers, disciples, the list goes on and on. You have a stewardship, right? You've been entrusted with a measure of influence, of oversight, of formal and informal authority. Are you being faithful in this? You know, we see here in this parable that it wasn't the servant's job to come up with their own plan, but to faithfully feed the servants according to the master's plan. And so are you doing that? Are you feeding and caring for people out of God's Word, not just out of your own wisdom and your own stories. And God has established authority not only in the church, but also in the world, whether in marriage or in the workplace or in government. All these structures exist as God's common grace and blessing to humanity. So so if you're someone with authority in the world, someone that God calls others to honor and to obey. In your use of your authority, don't make it harder for others to obey God. Husbands, don't make it hard for your wives to obey God. Uh, Live with your wives in an understanding way. Love them as Christ loved the church. Parents, don't exasperate your children, tempting them to anger. Raise them in love and admonition. Pastors and church leaders, make submission to your leadership a joy, not a burden. For your people. Having served in leadership in different contexts, I-, I can always tell when someone has never served in leadership before because they're so eager for it. They're so eager to be in leadership uh, for that influence and that prestige. You know, in reality, if, if you know, if you've been in that position, you know that leadership is a burden. Leadership is a, is a responsibility I think of John Brown's words to one of his students who was discouraged by the small size of his church. He wrote to him, I know the vanity of your heart that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brothers around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you have had enough. Well friends, we should all worry less about how many followers we have, how big our churches are, what titles we hold, and we should all care way more about being faithful with whatever the Lord has given us. Right. And for those of us who are under leadership, pray for your leaders. Pray that when Christ returns, he will find us not foolish, but faithful. And then finally number 3, we've considered these two kinds of servants, let's consider the result Right When Christ returns, will, he, will we be sentenced in judgment or will we be served by the master? Sentenced or served. For those who, have been, who are unfaithful, the return of the master is not good news. Now, in the first parable, Jesus compares it with the coming of a thief. In the second parable, the image is even more gruesome. The return of the master for those wicked servants will be an end to all their illusions of their own authority because the gracious master is also unwaveringly just and good. He will not be bribed. He will not stand by while his servants are abused. No, rather those wicked managers who who once beat other slaves will themselves be beaten. The punishment will fit the crime. You know, if, if you are someone who has ever been unjustly treated by by those who are supposed to be caring for you, by those who are supposed to be working for your good, you need to know that the master is coming back. Uh, You need to know that justice will one day be served, even if it hasn't been served here in this life, and that your deepest cries for justice will be answered. Justice is never perfect here in this fallen world, but it will be perfect when Jesus returns. And that justice will be perfectly executed We see here three different levels of punishment. For those who abused others, Jesus assigns the severest punishment. They will be cut into pieces and put with the unfaithful. For those who knew the master's will but did not get ready or obey, they will receive a severe beating. And those who did not know and did wrong will receive a light beating. You know, these are powerful images. I don't know exactly what they mean for for eternity, they reflect a coming sentence on the wicked that will be real and eternally weighty and perfectly just. The cries of injustice that we live with today will be addressed and they will be satisfied because the master that we serve is a good and righteous master. Now, here we are sitting in this wonderful school here in the West with so many wonderful resources Um, we realize that out of the history of Christianity, we are among those who have been entrusted with much. I mean, if you're a student, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, I mean, whatever, just if you're here in this room, in comparison with the history of Christianity, we have been entrusted with much, according to what Jesus is saying here. And therefore, according to Jesus, much will be required. And maybe you're thinking, boy, this is hard. I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to serve such a harsh master. Friends, it's true. Our master is a just and righteous master who will judge all evil. No doubt about that. But make no mistake, he is not a harsh master. No, he's an incredible, loving, and generous master. Look at verse 37 once again. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Uh, This is a master like none you've ever known. Uh, It turns out that no matter how hard these servants have worked, if they are faithful The outcome will be that they will be blessed. They will not come to the end of the story and find themselves shortchanged for their service. No, they will be blessed beyond their wildest imaginations. What a generous master this is. Do you see him? Do you see how richly he rewards his servants? He doesn't just reward his servants from afar. No, he for, for welcoming him home. This master now has his servants sit at his table. And he serves them. Previously, the, ma- the servants were told to gird their loins for service. Now the master girds his loins to serve them. You know, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I've watched Downton Abbey. Um, I can't remember a scene where Lord Grantham or the Dowager Countess, whatever her name was, uh, where they actually had the servants sit down and they served them. Right? I mean, that's, that's unthinkable. But here, that's what this master is doing. I mean, he's filling cups. He's bringing plates. He's, he's, he's bringing out seconds. He's setting out a feast for his servants to enjoy. I mean, this master loves his servants. And in the second parable, his master rewards his servant not just by giving him a raise. No, he gives him everything. He entrusts him with all that he has. Making him a co-ruler of all his lands, over all his dominions. What, what Lord has ever blessed his servants so richly? In this fallen world, God limits our authority because he knows that we're tempted to abuse it. But in the world to come, when we are glorified and our hearts no longer sinful, God will rejoice to share his throne with us. And it says there in the scripture that we will reign with him. So you see what's going on here. You are not awaiting the return of a cruel tyrant, who's just going to come down on you for all your failures. No, you're awaiting the return of a master who loves you, who is eager to joyfully reward you with unimaginable blessings, the greatest of which is himself. It's going to be to your everlasting joy to be found ready and faithful. And you may ask, how can this be? How can I know that I have such a master? And all I will say to you is we know that this is going to be the case because this is how he loved us when he came the first time. When he came the first time, what did he give us? He gave us everything. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross It turns out that our master is our greatest servant, and he came and he gave us his life in order that we might be saved from our sins. And he he has loved us so richly in his first coming, should we be surprised that when he comes again, it's going to be the same, if not more. Uh, If our master has already given us his life, will he not also graciously give us all things? So, friends, we do not await the return of a cruel taskmaster. No, we await the return of our beloved who is coming back to to redeem us, to save us from our sin, and to bring us to live with him forever. Oh, friends, for such a great king, 10,000 years of waiting would not be enough to speak of his greatness. May we be found faithful in waiting for him with the few years that we've been given. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would cause us to persevere. Oh, Lord, we want to see Jesus, and we want to hear from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, you have graciously entrusted us with much. Make us faithful to the very, very end, that we might rejoice in your house forever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.